Mark chapter 14. Let's get to the preaching. I've got, I've got a time limit here. I can't waste time. And as you go to Mark 14, go ahead and go to John 12 and just leave a little paper there. We're going to go back and forth between both of those today because they're kind of telling the same story. But our main text will be Mark 14. So Mark 14 and then John 12 as well. We'll be reading back and forth between both passages. Mark 14, we're going to begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, a spikener, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her, and Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she had done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessings now on the message. Pray, pray that you would be with us, your spirit among us, convicting, teaching, admonishing, Lord. Draw us into a closer fellowship with Christ this morning. May we love Jesus more than when we came here today. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Gospel of Mark is laid out in an easy-to-understand fashion, format. We see one part kind of building upon another uh, throughout the Gospel. In Mark 11, the story begins to take a turn and kind of head for the runway. It's a short Gospel, so they're going to kind of land the ship early. So he starts in chapter 11, uh, making that move. In Mark 11, 1 through 10, we see the triumphal entry where Jesus in kind of an official way uh, introduces himself as the Messiah for the Jewish people there. In Mark uh, 11, 11 through 14, Jesus curses the fig tree, which symbolically is this cursing of Israel. They did not bear fruit when they were supposed to bear fruit, and so he curses the fig tree. In the rest of Mark 11, we see the second cleansing of the temple in the Old Testament, when there was uh, uncleanness found in the house, the priest would go and he would examine the house and, and, and cleanse it. And then he'd come back later and he'd double check it again. And if there was still uncleanness, he would tear the, the house would be torn, torn down. So Jesus, he cleanses the temple, right? He's God's priest. And he comes to the temple at the start of his ministry and he cleanses the temple. And now at the end of his ministry, he comes back to the temple and it's still unclean. He has to cleanse it again. He has to drive out the money changers and... And all that's going on in there again. And so now the temple, the house, will be torn down and destroyed. And so in chapter uh, 13 of Mark, we see that taking place. In Mark 12, 1 through 11, he teaches the parable of the vineyard. So you see this progression going on in Mark, right? You see this progression happening where now here's the Messiah presenting himself. Then he goes and he cleanses the temple for the second time. He curses the fig tree, and he gives them this parable of the vineyard, right? 
And these, these husbands were, you know, you know the parable. He let out the vineyard to husbandmen, and then they killed the prophets and all those. And they saw the son, this is the son. Let's seize on him. Let's kill him. And then the, the, the Lord of the vineyard sends his armies to destroy those wicked people and let's have his vineyard to other people. It's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles there, right? That's what's going on there. And then chapter 13, of course, we see um, the judgment that's coming on Israel, on Jerusalem for their covenant breaking. And then we get to chapter 14. In chapter 14, after Jesus does all of that, what do you think the Jews are going to do, right? They're going to try to kill you. We've got to kill this guy. He's pronouncing an end to us. He's saying that the kingdom is going to the Gentiles. He's cursing us. Where those, when he told the, the parable of the husband, the vineyard, it says they knew, they perceived that he was talking about them. We've got to kill this guy. So we get to chapter 14, and we're getting out of the plot to put Jesus to death. He's about to be betrayed and arrested, but first we have a story which is a beautiful story to include at this point of the gospel. And we see the same account in other gospels. We're going to cross-reference a bit. Matthew tells the story very much like Mark does, but John gives a few more details that Mark doesn't include. So we're going to go back and forth. There are two separate anointings of Jesus, right? Both in the house of a man named Simon. One took place at the beginning of his ministry. That was Simon the Pharisee. You guys remember that one, right? He was anointed there, and uh, it was a, a, a sinful woman that brought the ointment there to, to anoint him. This one is in the house of Simon the leper. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. And the identity of the woman here is made known to us. We're not told who she was in the original one. Um, the Catholics tell us it was Mary Magdalene and she was a prostitute. We don't know all that. The Bible doesn't say all that. We know it's a sinful woman. But in this one, we know it's Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that brings the anointing oil to Jesus. So let's start in verse number one and kind of work through our text. After two days was the feast of Passover and of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. So two days after the Olivet Discourse was Passover. So you have the Olivet Discourse and then you have Passover. That's where we're at. The feast was a long celebration to be distinguished from the feast day, right? So there was a feast of Passover that went for several days. And then there was the feast day. You'll see that a lot of times in the Bible. The, the Jews, they love their celebrations. And so uh, there wasn't just the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Like, when you think of the Feast of Tabernacles, we think of what day is it on? But for them, it was a feast. It was a, a week or two of celebration that ended and culminated on a feast day, on the actual day of the feast. And so um, Passover was coming. The, 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 the pronouncement of judgment had just come on the Jewish people. The leaders are now plotting against Jesus to, to put him to death. As we enter this interval between the discourse and the Passover, Jesus rests in Bethany while the chief priests meet with Caiaphas to see how they can kill Jesus. But they don't want to take him during the feast, right? You have to understand. You say, why don't they want to kill him during the feast? There's going to be a lot of Jews gathering in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And a lot of them have been healed by Jesus and taught by Jesus and blessed by Jesus. And what they don't want is to arrest Jesus at the feast and have people rise up in his defense and protect him. So they say, no, no, no. Well, we want to take him, but not on the feast day. Now, God and his sovereignty is going to overrule them, isn't he? Because we know that Jesus is sacrificed at the same time as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. Because there was a picture there. He's the Passover lamb. 
So whatever plans they make, by the way, whatever plans the wicked make, the Lord overrules. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I was reading how they're plotting, and they're saying, well, not on the feast day. And I kind of corresponded that with Psalm 2. You know the psalm where they're plotting to throw off God and his anointed? He who sits in the heaven laughs. <laughs> not on the feast day. You're going to do it precisely on the feast day. Because I have a Passover lamb to sacrifice. The wicked can make plans, but God overrules their plans. So I want you to understand this in light of John's account. That's why I had you mark John in your Bible. So in John's gospel, the feast takes place, the feast in Bethany takes place six days before the Passover. And here we see it in Mark, it's two days. And I want to show you this is not a contradiction. Because people will say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. Is it two days? Is it six days? How many days is it? Okay, It's not a contradiction. The chief priests met to discuss Jesus two days before the Passover. Then Mark and Matthew go into a parenthetical account before resuming their discussion of the betrayal of Jesus. That's what's going on here. This is not in, in chronological order. So it's not two days before the Passover, they met, and then Jesus was anointed in Bethany, right? This, he's saying two days before the Feast of Passover, they met to betray Jesus. Pause. Here's this story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany, right? Because they're getting into the betrayal and death of Jesus. And so they stop, Matthew and Mark, they stop to give an account of the, prof the prophecy of the burial of Christ through the anointing of the woman. Do you see what, how that goes? So they're going to betray him to death. Oh, by the way, he was anointed for his death before all this even happened. That's, 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 what, that's what they're doing there. And then after this account, they go back into their account of the chief priest plotting to betray Jesus. So that's why, because you can't have Judas in both places at the same time. He's, he can't be both there criticizing the ointment and betraying Jesus at the same time. So it's a parenthetical story put in to the middle of what they're talking about. It's like when you're talking about a subject and you stop and go, oh, I remember when this happened, it's similar to this here. So... They're going to betray him. They're going to put him to death. And Oh, by the way, don't worry. That was already prophesied. He was anointed for his death beforehand. But he knew this was coming. He's prepared for this. And now let's get back into the story of the betrayal and the rest of Jesus. That's how they're telling the story. So it's not a contradiction. It's how they tell the story. So Matthew and Mark give the same details, but John gives us a few additional ones. So keep your finger there in John 12. And let's continue on right now in Mark chapter 14. Being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. So this Simon is obviously not a leper at the time that Jesus is there. A leper could not hold um, a, a feast. He could not hold, have company in his house for a feast, right? They lived outside the community. This is obviously somebody that Jesus had healed at some point in his ministry, some suppose he's related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Although Scripture doesn't tell us this, I think we can take some, some hints from it. I say it's possible because Martha is serving at the meal. Okay, notice how the text. She's serving at the meal. It's a strange thing for a guest to do. But not strange for a daughter or a sister to do. Family would be expected, right? Uh, look at John chapter 12, verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them 
that sat at the table with him. So it starts off, they made him a supper. Who made him a supper? Look at verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. So he came there to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they gave him a feast in the house of Simon the leper. That's odd, right? It sounds like if we just take the text, Jesus comes to see the three of them, and the three of them make him a supper. But we know from Mark, it's in the house of Simon the leper. So that's like saying to somebody, uh, I'm going to throw a dinner party at the house of Jason Jasper. That'd be weird, right? I don't live there. Well, uh, the Cooks and the Jenkins and the Rawls. I'm going to have a dinner party, you guys. Come over to the house of Jason Jasper. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, when I was a kid, uh, we lived on the same street as my grandparents, maybe about 10 blocks away, but the same street. Uh, and, and because we were so close and because we were family, a lot of times when we had a feast and people from church over for dinner, we had it at their house, and my mom would serve the food because it was her mom's house. And so it made sense. And I think this is going on here. I really believe Simon the leper is related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because they're holding it at his house and serving the food at his house. So it makes sense that they're related in some way, some fashion. Uh, it's not uncommon to hold it. You know, I, I, would, I would not be surprised if the Rawls invited us to a dinner at Pastor Max's house. I'd be shocked if Pastor Cook invited me to a dinner at the Rawls' house. And if Sister Heather was serving all the food. It'd be weird. But not, not of your family. If you're family, now that makes sense. So I think we see here they are definitely in some form or fashion related. Let's move on. Mark 14. Mark says that Jesus was eating there, eating, and there came a woman, okay? And John lets us know this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, John 12, 3. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So in John, she anoints the feet of Jesus. In Mark, she anoints the head of Jesus. This is not uncommon burial practice. You anoint the whole body. That's the point. You're anointing the whole body. So they're both giving an account of the same event from different perspectives. They're both putting in different information, but it's the same event. Look at Mark 14, 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at me, there came a woman having an alabaster box of, of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. This alabaster box would have been a flask of very precious ointment, very expensive. We're told in John it's 300 pence. 300, I think it's 300 pence. I'll see that. It's called pence, right? All right, just making sure I'm saying the right thing. We shouldn't have had a vice president named Pence because now my mind goes to that. Anyways, 300 pence. That's a year's wage. They made one pence a day. They worked 300 days a year. They took one day off a week for the Sabbath. That's, that's a year's wage in this bottle of perfume that she's lavishing on Jesus. This is not a small offering that she's making. This is a grand gesture that she's making. She was doing this as an act of worship. She doesn't just pour it out. She breaks it. 
There's passion in her offering. She doesn't even want to hold back. Take her time. Do it slowly. She just pours it all out on Jesus. His head, his feet, probably ran down his whole body, down to his feet. In Hebrew culture, a woman wasn't allowed to interrupt a meal or a conversation among men unless she was serving. We see that Jesus was changing some things here. Women are highly valued, and their worship is accepted before God. That's a statement we see here. Verse 4, And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? Some were angry at her act of worship. You catch that? She's worshiping. It doesn't affect them at all. She's worshiping of her own possessions, and they're mad about it. Do we need to ask who it was? Judas Iscariot, John 12, 4. Then says one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This tells us the perfume that she used on Jesus was worth about a year's wage. This was no small sacrifice on the part of Mary. In fact, R.C. Sproul hints that this may have actually been an inherited family heirloom that she's offering to Jesus. It could represent a life savings, a security account, a retirement account. This is a lot of money in their day for them to just pour out on a man, on his feet and his head. We aren't told why she had it or what it cost her to get it, but we know this was a major sacrifice. See, we glance over this story sometimes like it's just perfume, like whatevs. Go to the dollar store, get some more. This wasn't a dollar store offering. It was a year worth of work that went into this. That's why Judas got mad. It's a lot of money there. This was not a cheap sacrifice that she was making. It's like if you and me came walking in here with $40,000 offering. That's the sacrifice she's making here. Can you imagine that? Picture what you make in a year. I don't know what you make in a year. If you want to tell me later and give me a little, no. <laughs> Picture what you make in a year. Now take that and say, okay, I'm going to pay that and drop that in the offering plate. That's a big sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice. And what does Judas say? How dare you? How dare you waste that money on Jesus? There are so many other people that could benefit. He didn't care about the poor. But a lot of times, don't we withhold from God for the excuse that, well, I could use this to bless others. Hang on a minute. Any offering to Jesus is never wasted. She pours out a year's wage on Jesus to honor him, and Judas goes, how dare you do that? John 12, 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. He was a thief and he wanted that money. Again, it was a lot of money. Now, I don't want want to just put Judas on the hook here. Look at Mark 14, verses 4 and 5. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Do you see the plurals there? They... Judas started it, but the other disciples jumped in on it, didn't they? 
that group think, hey, you're right. How dare she? What is she? Who does she think she is? We're his inner circle, and we don't do that. They begin to jump in. Listen, don't jump in when people are complaining about worship, okay? Don't, don't follow the crowd. That's what's happening here. By the way, follow the crowd is what leads to the crucifixion in the first place. All right, you see an angry mob, you want to jump in and join them. That's what happens. Can you imagine the implications here? What do we see in this passage? We see her love for Christ set against the lovelessness of Judas. What was value to her was waste to him. That sets the believer and the unbeliever apart right there. The true worshiper and the false worshiper. To the false worshiper, giving that kind of a sacrifice, that's a waste. Spending all your time. I remember when uh, uh, Amy and I first got together. Her family was kind of Sunday morning only, unless you could get out of it kind of way. And they'd be like, you're going back to church again Sunday night? And on Wednesday, are you in a cult? They couldn't understand. Why are you spending so much time worshiping Christ? Because we love him. That's why. Because he deserves our lives, not just two hours, three hours on Sunday and Wednesday night. But that, that shouldn't bother true Christians. True Christians should look and go, you're going back again? Man, I need to go more too. Boy, that's a blessing. Your church has all those services. I need to find a church like that. But the false worshiper goes, what a waste. What are you doing? That's pointless. Why are you giving all your t- You just went to church and now you're praying again on Monday? Yes. And that's not the unbeliever. That's the, that's the professing Christian. Sure. That's the Judas. Remember, unbelievers are Judas. I mean, false believers are Judas, right? I've done this with our church before. I've done that, that parallel with our church. How much time do I have? I don't care. Um, you see, uh, when Judas dies, right, G- or G- when Jesus talks about Judas, he says, it's better for that man that he had not been born, right? When the apostles talk about believers who turn from the faith, false believers, they say it's better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to know it and turn from it. That's a, that's a great linguistic parallel to say that the, the, the unbelieving, the, the false Christian is a Judas, a betrayer of Christ. So you'll find the Judas in your church by how much they treasure the worship of Christ or how much they see it as a waste of time and money. Why are they doing that? Because they love Christ. I'm sure there are people who say, why are they wasting their time in Mexico? He has a church in Norwalk to take care of. Why all those Bibles? You can give one per family and you have less, you know, spend less money. Why all that? Because we love Christ. So we do it. And to us, it's not a waste. If you see the worship and service of Christ as a waste of time or money, repent. Check your heart. There's something wrong. We should, when we see other people worshiping different than us, more than us, deeper than us, it should drive conviction to say, I should be doing that. Not criticizing, saying, how dare they do that? I got two up on Judas. Sorry about that. Her love for Christ, set against Judas's 
lack of love for Christ. She poured 300 pence of perfume on Christ in worship. In a few days, he's going to take 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a dead slave if they were gored by an ox, Exodus 21-32. She lavished extravagance on Christ. The chief priests and Judas valued him as a dead slave. Verse 6 in Mark 14. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor always with you. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. I believe Jesus is addressing Judas directly here. He's saying that you always have the poor with you, but in less than a week I'll be gone. Let her do this good thing to me now. In John 12, see, my preaching brings the canons out. Amen. In John 12, Jesus notes that it's for his burial that she's doing it. We get the same statement in our text. In verse 8, she had done what she could. She has, she has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. She doesn't know his death is coming in a few days. But the Holy Spirit directs her to do this as a prophetic sign of his coming death. Verse 9, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she had done shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. What a wonderful tribute Jesus makes here. You call it waste, Judas. But I'm telling you, forever and ever and ever, her name will be told and praised, and yours will be forgotten. Yes. You will find, my wife and I have been joking about baby names. I'm still hooked on Zerubbabel. Changed my mind, I don't know. Yeah. You ever see those memes in the Bible where it says, change my mind, the guy sitting by the table? Yeah. I need to put my face in there and put, I'm going to name my kids Zerubbabel, change my mind anyways. But we both noticed there's nobody naming their kids Judas. You don't do that. But Mary, a lot of people name Mary today. Thousands of years, like 2,000 years later, people still want to name their kid Mary. But Judas is long forgotten, despised even by secular society. You even see like non-Christians name their kid Judas. They just don't do it. I want to draw a few conclusions. I got about uh, 10 minutes or so. We walk through the text, but I want to bring you to a couple of points. What does this text mean for us this morning or afternoon? Number one, radical worship costs something. Radical worship is expensive. The worship of Christ, church, is not something we undertake glibly or lightly. It's expensive to be a Christian. It's expensive to worship Christ. Too many people today are content to worship Christ as long as there's no baggage with it. There's lots of baggage. It's called a cross. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The problem is we have a lot of Christianity today with no cross bearing. That's the problem. No baggage. Just, uh, is it any wonder today that we treat marriage the way we do? Take it or leave it. Jump from place to place. Marriage to marriage. Relation to relationship. We treat marriage so glibly. Because we treat, we treat Christ that way. Among Christians. Oh, I'm, I like this church. I, I don't like it anymore. I like this church. They made me mad. I'm going over here. I don't want a commitment. Just, just let me get in on Sunday morning, get my latte, sit down, sing my songs, hear a nice little sermon, and go home. About, go about my life. 
That's not Christianity. I'm trying to get our church to grab a hold of this idea too that, that worship is not Sunday morning. Worship is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Worship is, a, we worship at work when we serve our bosses as we serve Christ. We worship the Lord when we're changing babies' diapers and telling bedtime stories to the glory of God, right? We do it when we go to the store and we treat people humanely. We treat people like image bearers of God. We do it at the abortion clinic. We're standing up for life. Everything you do is worship. It should be a life of worship to Christ. And that culminates here at the, at the appointed service times when you come together and praise him together. You get tired of people saying, oh, i got to come to church. i get myself in the get, get myself in the spirit for worship. You should already be there. That shouldn't happen Sunday morning. You should be worshiping all week. True Christianity costs something. Our lives. Total surrender. We've got to say in our churches, we're not going to be half-hearted Christians. We're not going to do this half We're not going to do this glibly. We're not... We're not going to be Sunday morning. We're going, to, we're going to be fully dedicated to Christ, fully surrendered. Take ourselves to the cross and leave ourselves there and say, Lord, do with me as seems good to you. That's the Christian life. Radical worship costs something. You say, well, I, I just won't worship radically. I'll just worship normally. There's no normal worship. It's all radical worship. There's radical worship and there's no worship. That's the only options. Christ is not something and someone that we can approach with a casual relationship. He wants everything or he has nothing. Understand that. To be a true biblical worshiper of Jesus is to surrender everything to him. Money, careers, living situations, our time. Everything belongs to Christ. I saw some people online. I don't have time for the story. All right, when they come in, I'm going to start speaking the only Spanish I know. So if you hear the word no a lot. Just... <laughs> I saw these people on a group on Facebook. And it's a Christian group. And they're posting, you know, we're newlyweds. Where do you guys suggest we live? We've checked out this state and this state and this state. What do you guys think? We like we kind of, and they're going over where they want to live. I told my wife, I said, we're, we don't have an option. Have you asked Christ instead of asking strangers on the internet? You realize we're soldiers, right? We're in his army. He's in command. Uh, uh, Timothy talks about that. The good soldier Jesus Christ. Any military guys in here ever went to the military and told them where you wanted to live? I bet you didn't. They tell you. Maybe these, these people I'm seeing on, maybe they should go to the Lord. Say, Lord, where should we live? Maybe it's not Kansas or Florida or Texas. Maybe it's the Congo. They should probably check. In other words, we surrender our right to live as we please when we come to Christ. We live, we work, we drive what he gives us to, to drive or where to work or where to live. So don't leave your job. Say, I don't like this job. I'm going to find one I like better. Has Christ told you to do that? Has he led you in that way? Then you have no right to do it. I don't I need to get a new car. I don't Let me get the kind I like. Maybe you should pray. Lord, what kind of car should I get? Show us the right car to get. We need to surrender our lives to Christ. Stop being so self-willed. We're under his command.
That's radical worship. By the way, church is the same way. Don't, don't go looking for a church. If you ever, don't ever leave this church. But if you ever leave this church, don't go somewhere and be like, ah, I don't like his preaching. Let's go find out about his preaching. Ah, I don't quite like their song. Let's go. Don't find a church to fit your preferences. Because what's going to happen is you're going to find a church where you like the preacher, and the preacher's going to leave or die. And then you're going to, at your own whimsy, find another church. Seek the Lord. Where do they preach the gospel? Where do they preach the gospel? I'm thankful for our church. People come to church to, they don't come for me. I'm a lousy song leader. They come anyways. I have a terrible voice. They, they come, and they don't even sing that loud. They can still hear me. Don't pick, don't pick based on your prayer. Seek the Lord in everything. That's radical worship. Fully surrendered to Christ. Love, number two, I'm, I'm out of time. Love is never a sacrifice. So radical worship is expensive. We learn from Mary that love, she didn't sacrifice a year's wage. She loved Christ. That was nothing to her. True love never makes a sacrifice. It's always the least you can do. When we stand before Christ, it's the least we could do, Lord. It's the least. We didn't sacrifice anything. A mother who loves her kids, my mom, I'd say she sacrificed a lot. There's only one place to sleep on the couch. We got the couch. She got the floor. One little, a little bit of money. She got the dollar hamburger, or hamburger, and we got the, the big meal. But if we were to ask my mom, she would say, I never sacrificed. It was my honor to do it. It was my privilege to do it because I loved them. Nate Saint, he lost his life with Jim Elliott and other missionaries back in the 1950s. He, uh, he wrote a Christmas letter where he talked about sacrifice. He says, as we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands, rather it is the simple intimation of the prophetic word that, we, that there shall be some from every tribe in his presence in the last day. And in our hearts, we feel that it is pleasing to him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Alka prison for Christ. As we have a high old time this Christmas, may we know Christ, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned as they hurtle headlong into the Christless night without ever a chance. May we be moved with compassion as our Lord was. May we shed tears of repentance for these we have failed to bring out of darkness. Beyond the smiling scenes of Bethlehem, may we see the crushing agony of Golgotha. May God give us a new vision of his will concerning the loss and our responsibility. Would that we could comprehend the lot of these Stone Age people who live in mortal fear of ambush on the jungle trail. Those to whom the bark of a gun means sudden mysterious death. Those who think all men in the world are killers like themselves. If God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips. And if God would, uh, and thought, our lips and thoughts, we would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all of our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us to judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Alcas from a comprehension of Christmas and him, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we might through his poverty be made rich. In other words, he's saying, as he goes to his death, it's not a sacrifice to bring the gospel to these people. It's the least we can do. If you feel that your worship is too big of a sacrifice, repent and redefine your worship. True worship is expensive. 
It's all-consuming, and it's never a sacrifice. It's the least we can do. Number three, people who don't love God will always criticize those who do. Don't worry when people criticize your radical obedience to the gospel. Don't worry about it. It's always going to happen. Those who do nothing always attack those who do something. You ever been out? I'm a street preacher, so you go out and gospel tracks don't work. What do you do? Oh, well, 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 I don't, I'm not, I don't, uh, nothing. You do nothing, and you're criticizing what I'm doing is not, you know what doesn't work? Nothing doesn't work. There's only one opinion that matters, and that is Christ. We are his slaves, not other people's. When others are displeased with your radical worship, just ask yourself, is Christ pleased with it? That's all that matters. We don't live to please others, we live to please Christ. And lastly, true love and worship will always be remembered. It's not forgotten. Just like Mary's act here, for eternity, our love, our devotion, our sacrifice, our service for Christ will be brought to mind and never be forgotten. Everything we do, church, everything we do will be forgotten. Nobody will get to heaven and be like, man, I wish I'd watch more TV. You're not going to be in heaven thinking about your favorite TV program. I mean, all that stuff is just rubbish. It's just nonsense. But our worship of Christ, our sacrifices for Christ, our love for Christ, time spent in prayer, time spent in the word, in song, in church, on the streets, will never, never be forgotten. It'll be memorialized in ages to come. Don't waste our lives on things that will easily be forgotten. Spend them on Christ. And don't just pour them out. Don't just pour out your life like slowly. For I mean, break the box. Pour radical worship on Christ. Ignore the naysayers. They don't love Christ. Is Christ pleased with your, your life? Is he pleased with your worship? Is he pleased with the the choices you make, the sacrifices you make? Then nothing else matters. Worship Christ freely, radically, expensively. I'm not saying bring $40,000 to the offering. Pastor Max, if you hear this, if you're probably saying, no, brother, say, say, bring $40,000 to the offering. Hey, if God moves you to bring bring $40,000 to the offering, it won't be wasted. But what I'm saying is pour out your life expensively for Christ. Lavish it on. Don't hold anything back. Because love for Christ is never a waste of time. It's never a waste of money. And it's not a wasted life. The wasted life is Judas. A man who wishes he had never even been born. Don't waste your life. Lavish it on Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this afternoon time together, Lord. What a blessing it is to be invited here. We love this church. The folks here, it's, it's like family, Lord. I pray that this message so stirred me this week was just what they needed to hear. Lord, may all of us in this room live radical lives of worship, Lord. May we be giving, selfless, 
And we never say, that's mine. No, no, everything is Christ's. May we lavish our lives upon you. Our bank accounts, our jobs, our families, our homes, our free time. May all of it be, be, all of it be lived with a radical statement of, I love Jesus. And there'll be Judases who look at us and say, what a waste. But Lord, silence. Silence the opposition. Give us single-minded hearts today, Lord. 